Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Shannon and John Carlton. It's March 15th, 2022. We're at Twist Wine Company, Pacific City. Shannon and John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Uh, first question to get things rolling is why wine? You want to go first or you want me to? Why wine? Mine's longer than yours. You're, then let's get yours out of the way. I wasn't really given a choice with a name like Shannon. Uh, my mom was pregnant with me when she and my dad planted Shannon Blanc grapes in Southern California and named me Shannon after those grapes. So I was pretty much put to work in the vineyard at an early age, suckering the grapevines, getting up in the you know, wee, mor- wee morning hours to do the pump overs in the winery, whatever needed to be done. That was the child labor. <laughs> My first real, or I guess my first exposure to real wine uh, was in college. I attended the University of California, Santa Barbara, and was a biology major, and uh, was really spending most of my studies in microbiology, and for my 21st birthday, I went wine tasting in Santa Barbara County and and fell in love with wine on a level that was uh, a lot more intellectual than what I had been, you know, drinking before, and I just kind of thought, well, I'm already studying biology. Why not study biology of wine? And so I tried to orient myself around the things that would be beneficial to winemaking. And at the time I was in college, my mom moved to the Napa Valley. So once I graduated, I had a free place to crash for a little while. So I went up to the Napa Valley and, and jumped right in. So we'll start with you since you, since we, uh, what, what about wine? You mentioned kind of on an intellectual level and an exciting, exciting wines. Tell me about what about wine and, and the process of learning wine was exciting to you. When I, one of the places we went in Santa Barbara when I was doing my 21st birthday was a winery called Ganey. And the tour guide there was, was really great. I, he was an assistant winemaker. And so we started off in the vineyards and he was talking about you know, the things that were going on in the vineyards, photosynthesis and nutrients and rootstocks. And then we went into the cellar and he was talking about fermentation and yeast and propagation. And those were all things and terms that I was familiar with from my studies, but had never really thought of it in terms of real world applications. And up until that point, I thought, you know, maybe I'll go into pharmaceutical sales or something like that. And, and I just thought, wow, here's something that's really fun and it sort of ties in with the the stuff that i'm studying even though there wasn't a winemaking program at santa barbara it was very similar to the things that i had been studying and i thought this is awesome i can combine both things i can combine being passionate about wine and at the same time having it be a science-based approach and it was actually using my college degree a novel concept right i know (laughs) so odd And Shannon, you mentioned kind of not ever having a choice. I mean, like you said, being named Shannon from the start, you're, you're just heading down that road. So tell me about growing up in, in wine, and, and at what point did you, did you either kind of realize it was something you wanted to do or decide it was something you wanted to do as you, as you got older? So it's kind of funny you ask it that way, because growing up, 
people would always ask me, what's it like owning a winery or working in a winery or being in a wine family? And I'm like, I don't know anything different. Like, I don't know anything otherwise. So it's just what we did. My brother and I were put to work at a young age, working the vineyard, working in the winery, working in the tasting room. You could get away with it back then. And um, so I didn't know anything otherwise. Like, I just thought that's what you did with your life. Mm -hmm. um, but as I got older and wanted to explore more, and I did some traveling and got to visit wine regions in other parts of the world, um, still a teenager, so not sure what I'm going to do with my life, um, I, um, I started to question, like, what do I want to do with my life? And um, I had moved to San Diego and gone to San Diego State for a couple of years, going, just going to school there. Again, not really sure what I was going to do. And um, at some point, I, my best friend, whose family had also owned a winery in Temecula, where I grew up, um, they had moved to the Napa Valley. And I called her to see if I could maybe crash with her while I looked for a job and a place to live. It was that, that kind of, what are you going to do with your life moment? Do you want to stay in the wine business? But I needed to see it from outside the family perspective mm. for anyone who's tried to work the family business continuously. It's, it can be challenging. So I um, moved to the Napa Valley. And I mean, I had like a couple of suitcases, a case of wine, and a bicycle. <laughs> and I, I got a job at Shandon, rode my bike to work every day. and just started there, started taking some classes at um, the community college there, and decided that wine was what I wanted to stick with. Well, before we get back to Napa, for both of you, uh, I'm curious about Temecula. Obviously, we've heard a lot about Temecula through our work here and uh, as one of the many California wine industries, not one that's obviously talked about as much or thought of as much as some of the ones towards the north. Uh, from your recollection, what was the Temecula wine industry like gr growing up in it? So my parents um, are credited with kind of inadvertently founding it as a finding it as a wine growing region. Um, they planted the first commercial vineyard there in the '60s, and it's kind of interesting not having you know moved to Oregon now um, and learning about the Oregon wine industry, and especially the Willamette Valley Pinot Noir roots. Um, when my parents were looking at planting in Temecula in the 60s, there wasn't a lot out there. And they went to UC Davis, and they were t told, you can't plant anything that far south. And it kind of parallels a similar timeline for when the Oregon Pinot pioneers were coming to the Willamette Valley. and the powers that be out of UC Davis were telling them, you can't plant anything that far north. And thank goodness everybody did, because the world's a lot richer wine world as a result. But um, yeah, my parents just forged ahead anyway. My dad's pretty stubborn, and he had an idea. And um, they planted Chenin Blanc and Petit Syrah. And from that spawned this you know whole industry now. But they were the first vineyard in the area. Um, Ely Calloway got word of what they were doing at the time. He was the, I think, president of Burlington Industries, or textiles. Mm -hmm. And he showed up in a 
I don't know, Cadillac or stretch limo or something chauffeured and white suit, white patent leather and stepped out into the, you know, dusty dirt to pick my parents' brain and I didn't, I mean, they were learning as they went, but um, as I think everybody was at that time and they, they just forged ahead and we were home winemakers for the first 10 years of my life and then when I was 10, we started a commercial winery and just did it. To your dad's credit, you know, he, there was a, a, a weather station in Temecula yeah. because of a lot of the, uh, there had been a lot of cattle there at one point at the Vale property. And to his credit, you know, he looked at the records from the weather station and compared them to the records of Napa Valley temperatures and found that temperatures were very similar during the growing season between that part of Temecula and the Napa Valley. So he wasn't just completely going out on a limb. That's so interesting. How did the, as you were there, how did the Temecula industry grow while you were kind of observing it? When I was growing up, it was pretty small. Um, there were a handful of people who started wineries, and I think when I graduated high school, there was maybe a dozen wineries, or you know, maybe it was 13 or 14. I mean, now I don't even know how many there are. I have to use Siri to get around because, I mean, not just where the wineries are, but the whole region. I don't even know my way around anymore. When I was growing up, it was very rural. Um, my mom would point out, like when I'd go home to visit, my mom would say, and that's where the dairies were, that's where so-and-so lived. And I would have to kind of picture that in my mind and overlay it over all the houses and shopping centers and everything like that um, that had popped up. But it's completely different now, I mean, Never did I imagine I would go sit on a, you know, a patio with beautiful fountains and um, overlooking these vineyards and horse ranches and beautiful vistas and, you know, $95 bottles of wine and stuff like that. Does, it does sound very familiar. <laughs> That's so interesting. I just remember the struggle. For. For you uh, and the work growing up, like obviously you mentioned you didn't know any other way, it's just, it was just how you did things. Um, how did you feel that your, how did you feel that the business did? How, how did you feel your parents were doing with things? Did they, did they enjoy the work? Did they feel like it was, a, was it a big struggle? Like, how did it feel to you? Probably all of the above. I mean, it was a big struggle because no one took you seriously um, at the time. I and mean, it was really hard to be taken seriously. And um, even when I moved to the Napa Valley in my 20s, like someone, you'd, someone would find out you're from Temecula and they'd laugh at you kind of thing. So um, it, it, they worked really hard to be taken seriously, you know, to make the wines that they made and get them onto store sh shelves and into restaurants and stuff like that. So it was a labor of love but it was a lot of hard work. So Sean, you mentioned that you, you, you got to Napa and just kind of hit the ground running. What was, the, what was the first thing for you as you decided to kind of dive deeper into wine there? What was the first thing you did? I had a job working in a tasting room in the Napa Valley and um, just thought I would work you know, in the tasting room for a summer and, and uh, 
figure out something else to do. And I ended up really enjoying it, so I ended up staying for a long time. And so uh, working in the taste room led to being into sales, and then being into sales led into being into management, and, and it just kind of moved on from there. Um, but I, I was always fascinated by the science side of things, and so I would always try to work a few days a week during harvest in the cellar to start understanding the way that things worked in the vineyard and in the cellar. And really that's just kind of what started it. And I was very lucky in the sense that the, the company that I worked for, which is called Pine Ridge Winery in the Napa Valley, started a winery in Oregon, Archery Summit in the Dundee Hills. And so in the mid 90s, I was able to come up and do some work in the Willamette Valley at Archery Summit in the mid-90s, working uh, some special events and harvest time, and so just started getting familiar with Oregon as well. So it was nice to have sort of these two different worlds I could bounce back between the Napa Valley and the Willamette Valley, and it was great. What were your initial impressions of the Willamette Valley when you got up here? I remember the very first time I came up, it was really, really foggy. And uh, I remember flying into McMinnville and, and everything was just encapsulated in fog and you're kind of driving down the roads and you've got these you know, wonderfully big trees but everything's covered in fog. And like I kept thinking that there were gonna be a whole band of samurai warriors riding out of the fog. And it was just really surreal, but it was beautiful. It was a completely different experience than the Napa Valley. And it just really kind of put in perspective that yeah, it is, it is cooler up here. It is a different climate. It's, it's much more in that sort of Pinot Noir wheelhouse than the Napa Valley was. You talked about kind of the, you know, you, you take a summer job that turns into a much more than that. Uh, as you progress through the industry, tell me about learning the business of wine. Obviously, it's a, it's a kind of a unique business. Uh, what did you learn about it that kind of allowed you to progress to marketing sales, things like that? And what did you enjoy about that the kind of process of learning about it? Well, certainly I tried to, to put myself in the production side of things as much as possible because that was what my science background was. And I think because of that, that helped me on the sales side because I, I was really nerdy about you know, what was in the bottle and how it was made and, and, and having that passion in terms of selling the product. And you know, this was in the mid to late 90s and so Silicon Valley was starting to blow up at the time and so the Silicon Valley blow up was then pushing money into the Napa Valley and, and it was kind of creating this almost domestic royalty in a sense that these sort of, you know, Northern California, Napa Valley, Sonoma County wineries were starting to, to, to turn into these trophy wineries almost. Um, a lot driven by some of that Silicon Valley, that new money, that instant money, the stock options. And so it was really fascinating to be out there selling product. And I was trying to sell it based on, you know, quality in the bottle and the things that were happening in the vineyards. And, and the company that I worked for had a very strong commitment to vineyards. And we were almost exclusively a state bottled and we like to make wines from different regions of the Napa Valley. So we were bottling by Appalachian. So we had a Stag's Leap District wine, we had a Rutherford wine, we had a Carneros wine, we had a Owl Mountain wine. And so it really kind of drove the idea that this sense of place, this sense of uniqueness within a small geographical region was a premium value. 
And that really kind of helped orient me towards Oregon when we came to Oregon and start realizing you have the same kind of thing here. And that was at the time that the Appalachians were really starting to blow up here in Oregon with the Dundee Hills and Chehalem Mountains and the various different sub-Appalachians and AVAs within the Willamette Valley. And so you had these kind of two things going on at the same time. You had, you know, for me, my knowledge was growing and then the industry itself was growing and you had all this money coming into it. And so it was just a really fascinating time to be moving through the system in the wine industry. As you were selling wine, you mentioned uh, obviously a, a, a lot of different reasons for people buy wine. I'm curious at that point, what did you feel like people were buying? Were they buying brand name? Were they buying region? Were they buying, what, what was, how were you selling wine? What, what, yeah. what was kind of, what were you looking for? You know, Napa Valley was a, a big selling point, certainly. Um, but it was, you know, at the time that I was doing it, and uh, when, when I first started, I was mostly in Northern California, and you kind of had a, a, a merging of a bunch of different things. The slow food movement was a big thing that was going on at the time. You had the, the sort of counterculture restaurants like um, Chez Panisse in Berkeley with Alice Waters, and it was really more focusing on the slow food concept, which was you know making food for quality rather than quantity, and finding small producers, finding high quality ingredients, finding things that were maybe only in season as opposed to things that you could get all year round to take advantage of that. And that was something that was paralleling what was going on in the Napa Valley at the time with wine, is that you were having this, this next phase of wine coming in where there was a much larger focus on quality than there was on quantity. And so you started seeing newer clones coming in. You started seeing lower yields in the vineyards. You started seeing vineyards and wineries trying to plant vineyards with higher densities to drive the quality up. And so there was this sort of mirror from what was going on in the gourmet food scene and restaurants in the Bay Area with that kind of slow foods approach. And then the same thing was happening on the wine side where you start seeing wineries and winemakers trying to orient their vineyards around that same idea of driving for quality rather than quantity. And so as that progressed, I definitely saw a, a noticeable trend in wine sales towards those products that were you know, visibly seen as more quality oriented. So Shannon, you mentioned uh, you you know you, you weren't sure you weren't sure about things, and you ended up back in in, in Napa Valley. Uh, tell me about kind of initial again sort of initial experiences in Napa Valley, and what what convinced you that wine was something you wanted to continue doing. Um, I don't know if there was like an aha moment for me, but working. Um, at Shandon, I would sometimes on my lunch break go up to the um, into the uh, lab and read some of the like more technical publications, and that's I think was a big moment for me that um, I realized I really did want to stay in the industry. I didn't know if I was going to go back to my family's or do it in the Napa Valley or end up somewhere else. Um, I just knew that it was something I wanted to stick with. I was working um, as a tour guide and kind of as a like sales and marketing guide. Um, I had just been I had been living in France um, for a year and had just returned, and my French was still pretty fresh. So I was hired by a French-owned winery and 
pretty much took anyone that came through from the parent company or even, I mean, just even if some French people walked in off the street, they would call me to take them through or talk to them. <laughs> um, but I think reading those publications in the lab and talking to the enologists and the people working in the lab really got me um, interested in pursuing it. And eventually I started subscribing to those publications and just reading them from end to end. And um, I don't know, when, we, when Sean and I met years, a few years later, we started home winemaking in, um, in our living room. We'd have like big, you know, food grade garbage cans full of wine fermenting and we'd try to remember to leave the windows open so we didn't suffocate the cat and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in a second. So this it's interesting. We've we've had a lot of sort of not necessarily aha moments, but the things that draw people in. This that that's a new one to me. To to be so excited about the enology part of things and the technical part of things. What about that? Why did that why was that something that grabbed your attention? I think um, when I was working at Shandon, there were some really great people that, um, and it wasn't just the lab people, there were some of the vineyard guys too. That like Shandon did a lot of um, education of their staff, and some of these people were just so down to earth and so easy to talk to and so approachable that. That I think had a, you know, it's kind of like when you have that one teacher that makes you really excited about whatever subject. You know, these were people that made it really exciting, and um, and I have friendships with some of these people still today. But we've all kind of sure. So let's talk about the two of you meeting and, and, and how you met and, and, how, and how, how you came to make wine in your living room from that. Um, well, I guess technically the first time we met was at Shandon, <laughs> although we didn't really realize it at the time. But Shannon had, was in charge of a, uh, a hospitality party that was a couch potato. No. Wine paired with popular TV shows. And snack and junk, food, and snack junk food, food kind of yeah. thing. We were yeah, trying to was... make sparkling wine like more down to earth. And so I came up with this idea of pairing it with popular TV shows of the day and like junk food. So Lay's potato chips and Hershey's Kisses or and we I, what were the Swanson frozen dinners, is that what they were? No, that was one of the hospitality parties oh, that Richard okay. threw. Um, so yeah, each there were stations set up for each of the sparkling wines, and each sparkling wine had a. And I had kind of drawn on cardboard these like fake TV screens with each show. So Friends, um, well, X Files. I don't think it was Friends. That was. There were Friends. Was yeah. Perfect. Well, I did this party twice, so it. Did, it had a couple of different iterations, but there was like a cop show, a doctor show, mm -hmm. X-Files was one of them, there was Friends in one of the uh, versions, and then we'd have the sparkling wine and um, popcorn, Lay's potato chips, Hershey's Kisses, um, Lil Smokies was with the cop show. I know it probably should have been donuts, but. No. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and it was we were doing an event trying to just show people that you can have champagne with anything. It doesn't have to be a special occasion wine. And we were introduced then, but it didn't. Nothing happened. And then I don't know how long, how much time two passed. Years later, two years maybe. later, I um, went to interview for a job at Pine Ridge Winery, and he was the one that interviewed me. Yeah. I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> she did it. Oh, yes. Yeah, she did. So yeah, that's where it started, and we both obviously were in love with wine, and started making wine at home. We'd go out and and pick basically what was considered second crop. It was the stuff that was left hanging on the vine after you know first crop was picked, and we would try to let it ripen as much as we possibly could, and and then go through and and you know pick all the second crop which was you know brutal because the clusters are smaller and they're fewer and farther in between and so and the weather's crappier and um, yeah and then we would come home and and throw it into food grade garbage cans in the living room and <laughs> try not to do kill all the our cat. punch downs in the living room yeah try not to kill the cat and try not to kill ourselves with the carbon dioxide build up and it's amazing that we survived <laughs> So yeah, so that's how we started making wine, and then we worked together not for very long, for about three months. Once we started getting serious, we realized it was probably not the smartest idea to be to be co-workers. So Shannon was able to on. get another job and, and went to go work for Groth Vineyards and Winery, which was fantastic, another amazing producer in the Napa Valley. So before we get to how you guys got to Oregon, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned obviously Archery Summit, and, and uh, obviously Archery Summit is a you know, pretty well-known spot around here, but at, at, at that time, what were your impressions of Archery Summit and of, its, of what it was doing up here? I was very lucky. Um, Gary Andrus was a, a wonderful mentor, um, wild guy, but amazing mentor, and he was really adamant about his staff knowing wine and knowing where the wines that he was producing had their roots. And so we were very lucky to have had access to wines from all over the world to taste in comparison to the wines that he was producing. And so I had a, a fairly good exposure to red burgundies and certainly Napa Valley Pinot Noirs. And Archery Summit was founded the year before I started working at Pine Ridge, and so the first vintage of wines were in the barrel at Pine Ridge. So the first year we actually, or we, not, I'm not there anymore, but Archery Summit made the wine in two different places. So some of the grapes were brought down to the Napa Valley and made there, and then the other half was actually made and fermented at Christum Vineyards. And, and one of Gary's ideas was to try to see whether or not a, physical separation and making them in different places and other making the wine in the Napa Valley versus making the wine in Oregon had any effect on the quality of the wine. And so I got to taste those that first vintage of Archery Summit out of the barrel down in the Napa Valley. I was, it was aging in the barrel. And then I got to fly up to Oregon and taste it in the barrel at Christum before it was ever bottled and so it was really neat to see and, and luckily we had had that exposure at Gary's insistent at Red Burgundy's and so we got to see the difference between Napa Valley style Pinot Noirs, Oregon style Pinot Noirs compared to Burgundy's and it became very clear to me at the beginning that A, 
Oregon was much more like Burgundy, and B, that Gary's style was to make heavier style Pinot Noirs. And, and that has always stayed with me, that, that preference for a little bit heavier style Pinot Noir. But it was really fun to watch those wines develop in that first year. And then the second year, you know, everything was made up in, in Oregon. And then as that was happening, the caves were being dug out and built and the winery was kind of being built around it. So the first couple of vintages of, of Archery Summit were as the facility was being built. Um, and so it was really neat to see that right from the very beginning of that first vintage and then to watch it progress as more and more of the vineyards started taking hold. You know, that first few years we were purchasing grapes from other people as the vineyards were maturing and taking hold. And then to watch the evolution as it became more of an estate bottled operation uh, was really fun. So you're, you're, you've, you've met, you've, you've gotten, you're starting to get serious, you're making wine together in, in, in your house. Uh, at that point, what are you thinking? Is this, are you thinking that eventually you'd like to have a, have a brand together? I mean, what, what, what's, the, what's the plan at this point and how, what are you thinking next? I think we knew pretty early on that we had some similar ideas as far as um, that we wanted to take it further and have our own winery. And I think one of the really big things for me anyway was that we had, um, we realized we had some similar ideas on how we wanted to sell and market wine mm -hmm. because it can get so, I always called it Niles and Fraser Crane. And um, I had gotten involved with a group that in Napa that was trying to kind of promote wine to younger people, to our generation at the time um, when we were younger. And, um, you know, so many people were in my age group were not necessarily turning to wine when they would go out. It was, you know, there was very early on in the craft beer thing, and we were, of course, into that as well, but, you know, people were drinking other things than their, the wine their parents drank, and so, you know, that was part of the reason I came up with that, you know, champagne and popular TV and junk food idea for a party, and um, so we knew that we wanted to we had similar ideas and like how we wanted to run our tasting room. We always knew that we wanted to have beer in our tasting room, which was completely unheard of then. Um, and so we started, we actually did write a business plan for the Napa Valley. We had no idea how we would ever pay for that, get the money, get someone to believe in us, to invest in us if we wanted to go that route. But we did the exercise. One of the things that we found was that there was a, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier with, with sort of the Northern California almost becoming this kind of domestic royalty. There was a, an exclusivity involved with premium wine that started becoming a primary driver of the marketing and associated with that was this almost kind of culture so it was a it was a very vocabulary driven it was very technical driven it was very complicated driven and so the marketing almost became this is a complicated beverage for complicated people and as recent college graduates that were hitting the Napa Valley our opinion was that that was maybe not a long-term strategy 
for the industry because our contemporaries were switching and going from beer to vodka and from beer to spirits and not going from beer to wine because of that barrier. And so as the baby boom generation was blowing up and making lots and lots of money, that sort of paralleled the evolution in the wine as it was moving towards more of that sophistication. And we were worried that that would come to sort of a grinding halt as the next generation came up, was not making as much money as their parents were, and had already had experience moving towards microbrew and distilled spirits that were really easy to get into. We were very concerned that that would not be a lasting marketing plan for the wine industry. And so we always envisioned ourselves as making premium wines, but having a way of bringing it a little bit down to earth and explaining it in a way that really, if you think about it, it's all alcohol is fermented sugar, right? And so we have a tendency to make wine really, really complicated, but at its base, it's the, it's the same thing as beer, it's the same thing as distilled spirits, it all comes from the same place. And we really wanted to try to approach it from a little bit of a less complicated, less sophisticated way of marketing the product. That was before hard hard seltzers came on the board too. Yeah, you had not worry about those yet. Yeah, although there was a first incarnation of it when I was in college, there was a product called Zima, which was um, essentially a hard seltzer. Yeah, it was um, a malt beverage, right? That was carbonated. Oh yeah, I think we were kind of talking about you know just just how we wanted to market our our product and and really we're trying to to market it as a product that is a fun everyday experience and didn't need to rely on that sort of sophistication and complication and, and excessive terminology. And so when we had you know, written our business plan, that was our goal, was to, to have a winery and tasting that would be more education oriented and really have that direct one-on-one -on -one interaction with our customers where we could break it down. And that was one of the things that I I made for a goal for myself was to take what I had learned in college and the science that I had learned behind it and try to distill it down into something that was a little bit easier for people to understand so that it we could present wine as something that was fun and you could make it as complicated as you wanted to. And so taking things like you know, talking about the ripening of a grape and, and how we pick a grape mm -hmm. and comparing it to a bell pepper. You know, the difference between a red bell pepper and a green bell pepper is time. Mm -hmm. And so that seems like something that people understand, but yet when it comes to ripening grapes, we've made it so complicated that, you know, people are too scared to get into it, but really it's kind of the same concept, right? You want to pick the grape at some sort of optimal ripeness. And if you can find ways of, of using different references to help people understand what's going on, as opposed to making it really complicated with these, you know, very esoteric wine descriptions and you know, sensual this and seductive that, and um, those place those things have their place. But we found that it was really off-putting to the, our contemporaries at the time. You know, young people who are the the next generation after the baby boom generation. But we never implemented our business plan in the Napa Valley. <laughs> never, never came around to happening. Yeah. So, what did prompt the move up here? What was sort of the next step, and how did you end up in Oregon? 
The winery that I was working for, uh, Pine Ridge, after Archery Summit, really got established um, and had been running for a long time. Danielle Andrus, who was the founder's daughter, was moving on and she was the, the general manager at the time. And so Gary asked me if I'd be interested in the position. So I told him I would be interested, but that I, I wouldn't do it without having given Shannon the opportunity to see Oregon if we were going to move from the Napa Valley to Oregon. So we flew up and, and checked out Oregon. And I spent one day in Oregon. <laughs> spent one day checking out Oregon. <laughs> yep. And it was not a rainy day, which was really pretty false <laughs> advertising at the time. <laughs> it was early in the season. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And we just, uh, I had been slowly falling in love with Oregon and the industry in Oregon uh, was very attractive to me in the sense that it reminded me of, of the way the Napa Valley was when I first got there, where it was a, a much more cooperative wine scene. And you know, you helped your neighbor out, you shared equipment, you um, worked with each other to, to drive a unique and a, a, a sense of place style marketing. and. That reminded me of the way the Napa Valley was before it sort of started heading in down that royalty path and a little bit more sophisticated and complicated and expensive. And so that was attractive. And we also wondered if maybe we'd have a better opportunity from sort of a financial standpoint to, to start a winery in Oregon as opposed to the Napa Valley. And that was at the time, you know, the Napa Valley where land prices had gone from, you know, $10,000 an acre to $100,000 an acre. So that was starting to become a much more difficult prospect. Yeah, and I guess we just decided we would do it. We did it. Yeah, so that was in 2001. One. Yep, 20 years ago. Yeah. So Shannon, you mentioned you didn't have a lot of Oregon experience when you moved up here. What, what were your initial impressions? Um, I, yeah, well, it's, it's it, no, it was beautiful for about two weeks and before, or when I got here. So the first thing we did was go get me a Columbia rain jacket and went to a few wineries. I remember being struck by Elk Cove because the colors were changing and it was just so beautiful over there. Um, and then it started raining and it was, it was a super wet year that year. I forget like how many days, like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens yeah. of days in a row we went with like I think it was over rain. 100, it was crazy. It was some crazy, but um, you know, I just went for it. Um, I didn't have a job right away, and um, so I was, while he was at work, I would go around, and um, we were we were set up in an archery summit house for the first little bit when we moved here, um, which was nice. It gave us a, it gave me plenty of time to kind of get a feel for the lay of the land, and so I would go out and with the compass because it was before our cars had, <laughs> or we had phones with it, um, and would just go look at properties. And you know, we, we were looking for a piece of property that we could plant a few acres of vines on. And I would go out during the day and just check off the list of properties, like this one might work, this one won't work. And then we just went from there. And, Eventually, I did get um, a job. I got a couple of part-time jobs working for some wineries, but um, I don't know. It was 
fun, but it was challenging all at the same time, trying to kind of get to know a brand new place and people that we knew from our Napa days at the time wanted us to just jump right in and start making wine and boy do I have great Pinot Noir grapes to sell you and I'm like I'm not ready for that yet like I need to get a feel for this place first um, and then when we were ready to start making wine the sideways effect had taken hold and none of those grapes were available but that's okay it wasn't meant to be and what were your impressions of, of the Oregon wines at that point, of what, what you were drinking as you were out around and, and of the people making them? What, what did you think of the industry? Wonderful wines. And um, we, I did get to go out like that first Thanksgiving and, and visit a couple of wineries and taste the wines and meet the owners and winemakers. I would also um, go to the Ponzi wine bar in Dundee. And you know they had the Ponzi wines, but they always had guest wines too. So I learned a lot by just going there and hanging out and um, tasting different wines and taking home a different bottle of wine for Sean and I to have for dinner. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed all the wines that I was tasting and trying when we first got here. In the late 90s and early 2000s, it's, it's kind of hard to go back and think about those times, but uh, it was hard to sell Oregon Pinot Noir then. And there were, there were groups of wineries, we would get together and we would go out and we would do these road shows where we would go out across the country and try to introduce various parts of the country to Oregon wine. And um, Pinot Noir was still considered a second-class citizen back then. It was an all-Cabernet world, you know, all-Cabernet, all-Chardonnay. And, and doing anything else was a challenge. And yeah, Shannon alluded to it. And that movie Sideways came out, and it's like all of a sudden Pinot Noir was really trendy. And um, it, it just amazing the difference that it made because that, even though it was a sort of a B level circulating movie, it had affected enough people that, oh, now people want to talk about Pinot Noir. And so it's amazing how much easier that made you know, marketing Pinot Noir. But it was happening at the time that Oregon was really coming into its stride where you, know, you have that first 10 to 20 years of just as an industry figuring out the, the region and the climate and the winemaking and the barrels and all of that kind of stuff. And then as it was getting it into its prime, that movie came out and, and really just kind of helped bring awareness to Pinot Noir in general. And I remember doing sales and marketing on the road for Archery Summit when I was the, the GM and, and visiting with accounts and with salespeople. And, and trying to come up with ways to, to orient people around just high, how high quality Oregon Pinot Noir was. And I had gotten to the point where my computer skills were good enough at the time that I was able to, to basically take all of the Pinot Noir reviews from Wine Spectator magazine from the year, and I was able to do it electronically and put it into a database and a spreadsheet and figure out that the highest scoring wines were coming out of Oregon. And so there was a very strong correlation there. And so to be able to take that and then present it to people to show them and say, hey, look, it's not just that we're saying that Oregon Pinot Noir is amazing. It's that if you look at the, all of these scores in aggregate, and obviously this was just one publication, that there is a very strong correlation that the highest scoring ones were coming out of Oregon. And it just really kind of helped I think drive home the notion that that quality aspect, that matching the, the climate to the way that the, the 
grapevine itself, the Pinot Noir vine sort of evolved over thousands of years, it really helped drive home that quality aspect. So um, with your work at Archery Summit, you're now in Oregon, from working from the Oregon side, selling, like I mentioned, selling Oregon wine, str struggling uh, with a grape that no one cares about yet, for a little while at least. Um, what were your impressions of the way the industry had developed in terms of sort of the infrastructure of Oregon wine versus what you'd come from? Where, where was it in its evolution uh, as an industry? And how much did you see it change while you were working at Archer Summit? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think like I was saying, it's, it was kind of that, that dynamic time in the Oregon Pinot Noir industry where you were going from from some of the pioneers who had really, like Shannon was talking about earlier, bucked the trend from Davis saying you can't grow grapes in Oregon, right? To to saying, oh, absolutely, you can. You know, you you match the grape to the to the climate, and you absolutely can grow Pinot Noir in Oregon. To not only can you grow Pinot Noir in Oregon, but you can grow really really good Pinot Noir in Oregon. And there was this sort of collective chip on your shoulder you know all of the producers in Oregon were like we know this is amazing now we just got to get everybody else to understand that was amazing and and the collaboration I think was really incredible and that was a key aspect of marketing Pinot Noir at the time was the collaboration where we knew that if we just went out as one entity it was going to be a hard sell but if we got together and we put you know, six or seven or eight or nine winers together and did this traveling road show that we could, number one, show that A, we're a neat community and that we all care about each other, and B, it was exposure to that many more Oregon wines, and so we could go in and we could do an invasion of New York City or we could do an invasion of Atlanta or we could do an, Atlanta, an invasion of Denver and, and just showcase the wines, and it was a lot easier to grab restaurant and wine buyer and retail store people together when it was, hey, there's seven or eight Oregon wineries coming out to do this event as opposed to just one. And um, that collaboration, I think, was, was really, it drove it home for me just how different the, the Oregon wine industry was. So Shannon, you mentioned that it took, it took a while to feel comfortable, it took a while to be ready to, to, to do what you wanted to do. Uh, so tell me, w when you were ready, uh, what what was kind of the step? How, how did you get the ball rolling on making your own wine? Um, we so we started our own winery in 2006, um, and you know, I had been working like some part-time jobs at different wineries. We had a piece of property that. Um, we had bought in the Eola Hills, but in the Yamhill County side of, of Eola Hills, um, thinking that we would put a few acres of Pinot Noir or a couple of acres of Pinot Noir on the property. And um, I don't know, I mean, I think just little by little, we've, we just kind of felt like it was time. We had been building our savings. Um, we had rewrote our business plan. We actually rewrote it or revamped it here in Pacific City after running our dog on the beach and realized that our ideas hadn't changed all that much, just that the time had and the, you know the location had changed. And Sean was ready to move on from Archery Summit and we were, I don't know, we just knew it was time to quit our day jobs and 
take that leap of faith and go out on the limb and see if it would break or not. And um, so our first vintages were actually, our first couple of vintages we did, um, what do you call it, negociant style? So we just, you know, we bought some wine and finished it and put it out there, started distributing it across the country. And then in 06, started crushing our own grapes and those started being released a year to two years later. and just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, we. I think one of our core drivers was that same concept that we'd had when we wrote the business plan in the Napa Valley. Was you know how do we how do we bring wine to to younger people without it being overbearing? And so the first label that we started, which was called Basket Case, was was essentially designed to be just that. Right? It was, it was designed to be. Um, a little bit less complicated, a little bit more whimsical. And so we started marketing that across the country and that was our, our negociant style wine where we were you know, buying partially made wine and finishing it and bottling it and then distributing it across the country. And it was our way of kind of coming out and saying, hey look, you don't have to take it to the level of complication that a lot of these wines are marketed as. You can still have fun, you can have a, a less expensive bottle of wine that's still really drinkable and still really good, but doesn't come with all of that sort of excess snobbery and, and excess complication. And and we did pretty well the first couple of years with it. And then the financial crisis of 07, 08 hit and just you know wiped everybody out. Um, you know, distributors were going belly up or not paying their bills and uh, everybody just kind of retreated and, and all of the big producers and the distributors were you know, kind of getting together and saying, hey, you got to pay attention to the big brands. And so, of course, little brands like ours got lost in the shuffle and, and we decided at that point, you know, we just want to know all of our customers personally. You know, we don't want to be relying on the distribution system. We really, from, a, from not only a marketing standpoint, but from a, a strategy and a defensive strategy standpoint, if anything like this was ever gonna happen again, we wanted to make sure that we had that, that direct relationship with our customers so that if they did have to make a choice of, of how to spend their dollars, you know, hopefully they would be spending it with the people they had direct relationships with as opposed to you know, what they could just buy at the shelf at the grocery store. And that financial meltdown corresponded with us having our first, you know, reserve wines coming into release, and so we had been working with these distributors for a few years now, um, with our, you know, a more approachable, easy drinking brand, and then building them up to this reserve brand. And now all of a sudden they're like, nope, we've got a warehouse full of these wines, this price point. Um, we don't want your reserve wine. We can't take it. And that left us in a world of hurt, trying to figure out what we were gonna do, how we were gonna sell all this wine. And that's when the tasting room came about. Yeah, we had had, like Shannon said, a, a, a property in the Ola Hills that we were planning on planting and making Pinot Noir from it. And you know, then the, the financial crisis started happening and 
there was a there had been a lot of Pinot Noir planted in the Willamette Valley for the few years prior to that. I mean, it was that kind of next phase of blowing up, at least in terms of vineyard plantings. You know, you had um, California purrs coming in and buying up land and planting grapes, and then you had bigger California producers coming in, and so our thought process at the time was, you know, maybe it's not the right time to plant right now because there's probably going to be excess grapes available because in our opinion at the time there was too much planting going on based on where the industry was. So we decided that we would not plant our own vineyard and that we would just try to develop contracts and purchasing agreements with different producers to you know, kind of keep that initial upfront cost down for us as we were starting our own company, um, but yet give us the ability to start making premium wines. And we actually started by making Merlot, Syrah, Cabernet, and then of course Chenin Blanc. <laughs> of course. Of course. And at the time, the only Chenin Blanc that was uh, around was in the Horse Heaven Hills of Washington, so, so we were able to develop a relationship there. And now it has become much more acceptable to plant Chenin Blanc in Oregon. But at the time, it wasn't. Uh, so, but we've been running with that vineyard for a long time and, and have had a lot of fun with it. But yeah, so of course we had to do Shannon, and we started with Syrah and Cab and Merlot, and then uh, gradually moved into the Pinot Noir side. Yeah, and we had that piece of property that we had. We eventually had to make a decision as to whether or not we wanted to plant it or what we wanted to do, and we just decided the way that the industry was going and the way that we needed to go for our business was that it would be better to sell the property and, and use the, the revenue from that to, to help drive the brand. So we did end up selling the Ola Hills property, which we sold to Brooks Winery, and so that's now where they have built their facility, and it's an amazing facility, and, and they've done great things with it. So, so you mentioned Pacific City earlier, where, where of course we are now, an, an interesting place to, to kind of plant your anchor. So yeah. why, why here? We... Um, when we, when we moved to Oregon, we started exploring Oregon, um, just getting to know the place, and we found ourselves coming back to the coast. Like, we'd go to Crater Lake, and we'd come back to this neck of the coast. We'd go to, you know, the gorge and come back to this neck of the coast. And so we ended up buying a little beach shack. You know, it was something we were just going to use on the weekends, share with our friends. And um, when push came to shove and we were ready to start our own winery, we had sold the um, Eola Hills property, we downsized into that little beach shack and um, ran our business from our little home office. And we liked the idea of being near the water, um, both he, you know, having gone to school in Santa Barbara and where I grew up in Southern California, I was never very far from the beach. Um, I went to school in San Diego for a while and would go study on the beach. <laughs> so we both like the idea of living near the ocean. Obviously, it's a little different than California beaches, but we fell in love with the area and decided that this was where we wanted to plant our roots. And um, when we decided to open the tasting room, we found a space here in town that we thought would be a good location for our tasting room and set to remodeling it um, in 2008 and opened the tasting room there for, we were in that location for about 10 and a half years. We were talking about opening a tasting room in McMinnville and 
you know, we realized when we went back to our business plan and, and looked at what our sort of core founding principle was, which was to try to, to make wine a little bit, you know, less esoteric and make it a little bit more approachable, um, we realized that if we were capturing people when they were on vacation in Pacific City or at out the Oregon coast, that it'd be a little bit more relaxed atmosphere, you know, rather than be in the Willamette Valley where people might be hitting two or three or four wineries in a day and just getting this constant barrage of, of, of you know, complication, so to speak. Uh, we just thought that by capturing people when they're just in a little bit more of a relaxed state might be a good way to to market our product and so thought that it'd be more fun to have a taste room here in Pacific City where we caught people at that you know, element of being on vacation. And like Shannon alluded to earlier, uh, we always wanted to have this idea of, yes, we want to market you wine, but that's not the only thing you're allowed to drink. And so we wanted to make sure to have some beer on tap because there's always, even going back to our Napa Valley days, there was always some member of a group that showed up that just didn't want to do wine. Beer. You know, and so they'd either sit out in the car or, you know, sit there and complain or it's like, well, you know, why rule it out? I mean, you know, we have a saying, it takes a hell of a lot of beer to make great wine. And so why not have some beer on tap as well? And so I think that's really kind of helped us in, in the marketing and that it's just, you know, hey, it doesn't have to be really complicated. So let's enjoy some really good wine with some really good friends and have a good time and, and that can be as, as as easy as it gets and, and you can make it as complicated as if you want to if you're really interested in that. But you know, drink your favorite wine with your favorite food and you can't go wrong. So I want to talk about the, the sort of the production side first and then the, the hospitality side. So you've kind of set up roots here in Pacific City uh, so, but you're still making wine. So, how did you sort of decide? How, how did that work? How did you, how did you find a place to do all to make wine as well? We started. We decided we wanted to go the more traditional, the negociant style, where we didn't want to own our own facility. We didn't want to have a, a big winery on top of a hill. Uh, we wanted to really put more of our our effort into um, marketing the, the wine and and having an opportunity to create the product that we wanted to but not have to be winemakers ourselves. So we thought that the negociant model would work out well for us. And uh, a friend of mine, Aaron Hess, had left uh, Rex Hill and had started working at 12th and Maple Wine Company, which was really at that time trying to market themselves as that sort of negociant custom crush style facilities so we decided to pull the trigger and that's where we made our first few vintages was having Aaron make our wine for us and and decided that that model worked for us so we could have Aaron be the winemaker and, and we could focus more on the marketing side of things and it worked out really well and then after a few years at 12th and Maple and sadly with Aaron's passing we decided to move on and, and another friend of ours Remy had decided to open up her own place and so we started making our wine with Remy and um, had her make our wines for yeah, us. We make most of it, most everything at Remy. We do our Chenin Blanc at our Stewart. So it's kind of nice. It's right next to each other. And how, in terms of sort of, obviously for a lot of people sort of the, the control is an important thing, right? Make, making what you want, how you want to make it. So using friends as winemakers, how has that, how have you kind of felt the balance of, you know, giving over control to someone else while still making it your wine? How, how does that work for you? I think having the 
relationships that we have with these people and you know discussing from the get-go like what we like because you know the style of wine that we want to make might not necessarily be exactly the same style that they, they produce but because we can all talk about it and taste through everything together and again just keep the communication going um, we can get what we want and they understand us and the type of wine that we want Rob's always teasing me like the Chenin Blanc's not quite done yet it doesn't have the acidity that you like <laughs> He, he knows what I want in that wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we, we're pretty strong in our opinions of how we think wine should be. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that helps guide us. There's particular styles that we like. Certainly you can, you can imagine the, the styles of wine based on our experience. And so those are the styles of wines that we gravitate towards. Uh, we like a little bit heavier style Pinot, we like a little bit more oak, we like a little bit more extraction, and so those are the types of things that we enjoy. And I think having that friendship really helps because they, our winemakers know what we like. You know, they know the style that we like, and it allows us to have control over the direction that we want to go and the overall impression of the wine, but not have to be there for the you know, actual day-to-day winemaking of things. So you mentioned that the Basket Case was, was the first brand name. At what, what point did it become Twist? Basket Case is the name of our winery and LLC, but we didn't have a tasting room right you know, from the get-go. So when it came time to open the tasting room, and by then we had started, a, you know, some, of, some of our other labels had been released, and we didn't want to I guess just be pigeonholed under the basket case label because that had a specific following and um, we wanted something that would be a little more encompassing and we came up with the name Twist um, as kind of I guess the umbrella over all of the different brands that we make our wine under. We at the time we were opening our tasting room we, we wanted to have a, a name that would be synonymous with the tasting room that collection and said be an umbrella name for our company and we were both of us were really into vinyl and we were uh, putting in place basically a vinyl library at our first tasting room and so we also knew that based on our direct experiences with cork taint that we didn't want to put corks in our bottles of wine we wanted to have everything be screw cap so twist kept kind of coming up in all these different things that we were doing and so we thought it would be a nice overall name one of the things that Shannon and I learned when we were down in the Napa Valley was that most of the wineries of the Napa Valley, and certainly the ones that we worked for, made multiple different types of wine, but they were all under the same label. So when you walked into a facility and you saw all the bottles of wine, all of the labels were the same, and the thing that changed was whether it was a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Merlot or a Sauvignon Blanc. And there might be little changes with color of the font and that sort of thing, but really all of the labels were presented as the same. And it's great for marketing, but what we realized year and year uh, as people were coming back and visiting, they'd come in and they, oh, God, I don't remember what I bought. You know, I don't, all the labels look the same. I don't remember which one it was. You know, I don't remember if it was the Rutherford Cab or the Howe Mountain Cab. And so we just decided that we wanted each style of wine that we made to have its own identity. So rather than have 
one label with one name on it, we decided that each different style of wine that we made would have its own identity so that if you came back the next year, you could say, oh yeah, I remember it was the wine with the naked lady on the label, or it was the wine with the crossword puzzle on the label. And so we have a, a few different brands, Shai Shannon, obviously named after Shannon, and that's just more of our sort of refreshing, you know, Shannon Blanc and Rosé. And then Stumbling Block is a label that we have that we make a little bit, just a slightly sweet style wine. And then Mood Light Merlot is named in honor of Shannon's father, who was a Hollywood lighting director. And so he was always into um, setting the mood with lights. And so, uh, and in fact, invented a, a. Invented the mood light. Invented what he called the mood light, which was a, a mood invoking light that you could set up in your living room to have a cocktail party with. And so. And then our reversal label is our reserve label. And we were really drunk one night and realized that if you uh, took the word reserve and you reverse two letters, it becomes reverse. And we knew we wanted to make a reserve label, but at that point, uh, we knew that the word reserve had kind of lost its luster. I mean, you could go into a grocery store and buy a $5 bottle of wine that said reserve on it. So it didn't have the same kind of cachet that it did when we were first starting out in our careers. So we wanted to have the concept of a reserve wine, but we didn't want to call it reserve. So when we came up with that idea of reversing two letters and make it reverse, we thought that that would be a good way of designating our reserve wine. You can always tell a wine name story is going to be good when it starts with we were drunk one night. Yeah. <laughs> it's, always, yep. it's always going down. That's how all our labels get invented is <laughs> we were drunk one night. Mm -hmm. So uh, with, the, with the location here, you mentioned a very different kind of mission than, than, than if you're in the valley. Like you're, looking, you're, you're talking about tourists. You're talking about people who are maybe coming once a year, once every couple of years. So tell me about building your business here and about finding customers. And, and, and was it something where it's like, oh, my gosh, why wasn't there a winery here before? Or was it like, did you have to kind of, you know, did you have to find people that wanted to come here? We threw a big party on the beach and invited everybody that we knew and told them to invite their friends. <laughs> Had a big That's barbecue, and yeah, when our first Chenin Blanc and Rosé were released, um, we took a couple cases down to the beach, dragged a barbecue down. Um, we had home-brewed a keg of IPA and poured that for the people who didn't want wine and kind of introduced ourselves that way and then took it from there, opened our tasting room, and um, there, you know, Pacific City is a pretty small full-time population, but there's also a lot of people that have second homes here that come out pretty regularly. And so little by little, we got to know these um, locals and regulars, and they became our following, and um, it just kind of, almost like the concentric circles just expanded from there. Yeah, I think we were sort of accidentally at the right time. You know, Pacific City was, was getting more and more popular. Um, once sort of social media took off and, you know, everybody's taking a picture of the rock and of the cape and, um, you know, standing up and doing the selfie pose at the end of the cape and it just kind of started driving more people here. And I think going back to that aspect of having some beer on tap, and having a, a nice selection of beer, 
helped us with locals too. So it just kind of, in a sense, doubled our potential customer base because not only could we capture the wine drinkers in town, but we could capture some of the beer drinkers in town. And then, yeah, like Shannon said, it just slowly, you know, word of mouth, slowly started spreading, which is kind of how we wanted to set it up. We certainly would have loved to have, have had our sales be higher right at the beginning, but going back to that aspect of trying to have sort of a, a really solid base of people that we knew directly uh, to protect ourselves if ever there was another crisis. Surely not. Imagine Amazing. that. <laughs> Um, so we kind of just built it slowly and organically, which really helped us out when COVID came. So, yeah. well, we ask about COVID in a second. I'm gonna have, I have one more question before that, though. Uh, in terms of the clientele here, uh, did you find people were? You mentioned kind of you, you wanted you wanted to be very approachable, but you you could go down the rabbit hole if people wanted to. What did you find in terms of wine clientele here? Was it what you expected, or was, was it was there more? Were there more people here who were Perhaps more adventurous or more, more more seeking more education than you expected. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it, it was all across the board. I think that's one of the great things about being in a in a destination place, is that you get exposure to all different sorts of people. We actually started something in that vein in our last location, which sadly we suspended for for uh, COVID, but we called it Sunday School where it was a, a little bit more education-oriented tasting experience where we opened an hour early on Sunday and you could sign up for it in advance. And that was where we could sit down and have an educational session where we were tasting wines and talking about vineyards and talking about photosynthesis and talking about fermentation and, and a little bit more of a technical aspect but still presented in a, in a very easy and educational way. And that really kind of helped too. When you, as you were, as you were growing, um, did you have a, did you have like a, a something in mind as like an, in, an end goal? Did you have a certain number of, a certain number of wines or a certain number of cases, or did you have a, an idea in mind of what you wanted to reach? I don't think we had a production number in mind, but you know, our our basic mantra was, you know, we want to make wine that we want to drink. I mean, that's what it comes down to. At the end of the day, we're drinking our own product and we don't want to make anything that we don't want to drink and it seems really simple but that's just what it ended up being and so our goal was to to make the wine that we wanted to make make the wine that we wanted to drink and then we just let the brand grow based on demand and as as our sales and, and demand increased we increased our brand but i think we found that we I don't know if we quickly outgrew it, but we eventually outgrew the old space. And it, it was almost like we were up against this limit with the square footage of the building, you know, when everyone wanted to show up at the, you know, kind of happy hour drink time, we couldn't handle it. And um, that, that was an impediment, but we've, figured out how to get over that, I guess. By moving. By moving. Okay, so tell us about the new space and how it came to be. Um, the building had been empty for a couple of years, and we noticed the terms for the offering of the building had changed. And um, a friend of ours, who's a realtor, and I dragged Sean in here. And, and it was completely different. It was. Um, uh, 
track lighting everywhere. It had been not really a gallery, but they showcased a lot of glass artistic mm -hmm. pieces and stuff like that. So there would be like these, um, this like carpeted corner where they had specific lighting on specific glass pieces and just um, there had been shelving everywhere so there were like you could see the holes from all the shelving there was track lighting I, I've never seen so much track lighting um, carpet but like the, the building has good bones and it had a great feel to it and our realtor Shay and I were like we've got to go for this and um, that was in 2000 late 18 and we got the place in 2019 and started remodeling, spent a, three months remodeling and getting the license switched over and everything like that. And got opened up to, you know, great fanfare from all our friends and customers and regulars who were so excited for the new space, the more, you know, twice as much elbow room, um, a little spot in the back to do a kitchen for some small plates, being able to offer some more retail um, food items, being able to expand our beer and champagne and sparkling wine offerings. And then seven months later, COVID shut us down. It was a fun run. <laughs> Indeed. So with the new space, uh, you mentioned kind of all the possibilities that opened up for you. Mm -hmm. Were there, what, did you have other plans for me? What, 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 what was the plan to kind of, to, to grow into the space? Did you have other things that were kind of on the docket? We, we wanted to add some food, some small plates, because we didn't have space at the old space, and the retail food items, and expand the beer. Um, and then also, like, expand that Sunday school that Sean was talking about to where we could um, hire more staff so that we could be offering Sunday school on a Wednesday evening, or if a private group was coming into town and they wanted to, you know, hire us to do Sunday school, we could do it. We've got a whole upstairs area and our office is up there, but there's more space up there that we could do that um, and host larger groups up there. Um, yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah, having that extra space, I think, was a real driver. And, you know, it gives us the ability to do some more in-depth type things, whether it's, you know, a poetry reading night or a movie night, or we're going to do a little bit more education or food and wine pairing now that we've got a little bit of a kitchen space. Um, we turned the upstairs into more like a live music lounge so that we could get some live music going. And so we have lots and lots of ideas, which, you know, will be on the table again once we emerge from this. But yeah, I had to put all that on hold as everybody else did for the last two years. So, so tell me about that. Obviously, uh, everyone dealing with it simultaneously. Tell me about March of 2020 and sort of immediate impact immediate what you had to do immediately and how you pivoted to deal with the, ne the next couple of years kind of ties back to that sort of how we set up our business to protect us in the in the event of some sort of crazy crisis that was one of the big take-home lessons we learned from the 2007 2008 financial crisis was you know, we a wanted to set ourselves up so that we weren't reliant upon distribution across the whole country and b wanted to know each one of our customers directly and so yeah when covid hit you know of course our immediate reaction was we have to shut down because you know the governor ordered uh, all fun businesses to shut down 
for 12 weeks or however long it was. Um, and there was a war on fun for a little while, which, you know, in hindsight, I guess was necessary. So we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we continue to reach our customers uh, while we were shut down? And, and I think that aspect of, of having the direct interaction with our customers and knowing our customers personally really helped us. So we were shut down, but we were open for retail sales. So we tried to, to move into just doing retail sales only. Having social media, I think, was a big help because we would just blast social media with whatever we had. I mean, if I got new beer deliveries and I would post pictures of all the new cans and bottles or we um, paired up with the Grateful Bread Bakery. Um, we did pizza and Pinot on Saturday nights where um, she, Robin would come up with three different pizzas and then I'd take the orders, pick up the pizzas and deliver them to everyone in town um, with a bottle of our Pinot Noir and it helped introduce our wine to some new customers in town who had been customers of the bread, but not customers of Twist and vice versa. Well, everyone's a customer of the bread, yeah. so. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, that, that was probably the first big thing that we did. Um, and it helped us, you know, financially. And it also just helped break up the monotony of, like, and the depression of yeah. what we were going through and what we were all experiencing and and for customers too because they yeah. weren't you know they didn't get out you know there wasn't any place open so you know having someone show up with a pizza and a pinot was yeah cool. and then every two weeks when the pc sun our little local newspaper came out um i kept asking tim the owner to bring me copies of the pc sun and i would take it to everybody with their pizza and people loved that, I mean, to get the news and they didn't have to <laughs> leave their house. Um, so that was a really big help. Um, again, not just financially, but I think for everyone's psyche. But we spent those first few weeks, like one of us would be down here waiting. We set up doorbells, as you heard earlier, um, for deliveries and for, we put a sales window in the kitchen and um, would you know, do all the sales that way, especially in the beginning when there were so many unknowns mm -hmm. and um, people would ring the doorbell and we'd bring the wine out to them. We set up a little delivery um, here in town so people could call and we could do contactless delivery. We had people that we would just leave their purchase outside their garage or just inside their garage or wherever they wanted us to. But one of us would be kind of dealing with that while the other one of us was up in the office or we actually set up a little office down here um, and we're just looking at ways to find financial aid or f filing for grants and loans and whatever was out there trying to do anything that we could to get some dollars in the bank to keep our business afloat while we figured this whole thing out. I think you know our, our, our business model, our structure helped us in some ways in that Pinot Noir especially is a, is a really good food pairing wine. And so I think as an industry, the Oregon Pinot Noir industry tended to get a little bit more restaurant heavy over time, a little bit more on-premise oriented. And so when everything shut down at the same time, you know, all of a sudden those restaurant sales dropped out. You know, we were really lucky that we didn't have a large exposure to you know, on-premise distribution throughout the country because 
it just disappeared, you know, overnight. And it is slowly coming back, but, you know, that was a big hit. And hopefully we can all get back to where uh, Oregon Pinot Noir can be dominant in restaurants again, but it's been a long, hard path for a lot of people. Talking about the path for you, obviously, some kind of fits and starts along the way with reopenings and reclosings and mass mandates yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Tell me how you sort of handle it here and, and what it looks like for you now uh, in, in March of 2022. It's a good question because, I, I, you know, even though the mask mandate is on hold or, or temporarily over, you know, we're not done with this thing yet. And it's been a really interesting learning process. We, of course, were shut down at the beginning, and then when we came back, we had to have tables spaced a certain amount apart. We only had, you know, we could only have 50% occupancy. You know, everybody had to wear a mask. You know, so, so many people per table. Right. Like yeah. Our that's locals right. couldn't just all crowd together like they used to. So. So it was a it was an interesting. You know, one of our big draws was people would hang out at the bar and socialize and then that disappeared overnight and so we absolutely had to you know follow all the rules and the procedures and we spread out and we lost tables and we we minimized you know capacity and as we're coming back we're slowly you know coming back the other direction our footprint is still the same we still have large distances between our tables we're still limiting the number of bar stools that we have and I think there's gonna be this transition period where people are gonna to need to get comfortable being out again. And luckily we have the space here to do it. But I think that a lot of this is gonna stay. I think that there are, are it's gonna change the dynamic, and at least in the short term. Um, I don't know if we're gonna have people fighting over each other for bar space in the next year, you know? And I don't think we're gonna have crowded table spacings. I think we've gotta grow with our customers and, and understand where that comfort level is. So, uh, as you look ahead then for your business here and for the for both the for both the winemaking part of it, production part of it, and the hospitality part of it, what are you looking ahead to now? What, what's what's coming next? Finding staff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be a challenge I mean, for a little while. A, a lot of what we're able to do here in the tasting room is going to be dependent on staffing, mm -hmm. and it's always been an issue out here at the coast. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID has definitely exacerbated it, so. And unfortunately, the wine industry isn't one of those industries that can turn on a dime. You know, when you're talking about having, you know, long-term contracts and you're talking about three to four years to make a red wine, you know, when something like COVID hit, you don't have the ability to change your production as fast as something like a, a, a COVID crisis. And so we've kind of just kept things even keeled we haven't wanted to rock the boat we haven't wanted to make too many big changes and so as we're coming out of it we're now going to have to take a look and look at the way the industry is look at how our customers are uh, see where things are heading and it's going to be making that transition from a little bit more of a defensive posture to okay what's our opportunity now and i don't think that question is answered yet i think we're still another year or two from figuring out what the new normal on the other side of this thing is going to be and and you know, personally, I'm loathe to, to make too many crazy changes until we have an understanding of where that's gonna go. 
is there anything you're looking ahead to that you that you want to do either from a from a varietal perspective, from a style perspective, from a event perspective? Anything you're looking ahead to that you're kind of excited about in the future? Just getting back to a little more normal or <laughs> pre-COVID normal. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but it's just been a really exhausting couple of years. One of the things we've tried to do with our taste room is kind of make it a little bit like a community living room and have it be a place where people can just kind of hang out and relax. And, you know, we lost a lot of that. So we kind of lost a sense of community over the last couple of years. And, and, and I think everybody has. And so we're just going to have to reevaluate as, as people's new comfort level. And are we going to get that sense of community back? Are we going to be able to hang out together again? And I'm very much looking forward to that, but I can certainly understand that it's going to be a little bit of a transition. I, I think some of that's starting to come back. Um, and a couple of the good things that have come out of all of this is our new patio area out back. We now have some outdoor seating that's really nice in the summertime in a big lawn area that serves as overflow. And these big long tables over here, that, those were our COVID tables. Um, and now that's kind of where the locals hang out in the evening and it just becomes their little space that they take over and we have kind of different groups of locals but they all co-mingle and so you'll have the, the fishermen over here and the, just our regular group of friends but they all know each other and they bounce back and forth and so that, there's, there's some small aspects of that community starting to come back but there are some people that some customers that may or may not come back depending on their comfort level and you know we're, we're still delivering wine to their doorstep if they want it but um, as far as how comfortable they feel coming back in here like they the way they used to I don't know if that will ever happen or it might just take a take them a little bit longer than others I think one of the things that's going to happen especially with the direct to the consumer market when you're when you're selling directly to customers, I think the concept of a safe space is now going to be in everybody's um, idea of where they want to hang out. You know, what's all going to be? Do I feel safe in this space? How many people are in this space? You know, we're even though the mask rule is over, COVID itself isn't over, and so I think that there's a way to um, to distinguish yourself by providing a safe space for people to hang out. So we want to talk about the industry a bit more from kind of a you know, mile high perspective here. Let's talk about, uh, obviously you've been around Oregon Wine for quite a while now, you've seen a lot of changes in the industry. Tell me about the biggest changes you've seen. What are the, what are the biggest changes from kind of introduction to Oregon Wine for yourselves to now? And what does the industry look like to you now in 2022? That's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> it is. That's why we asked. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's certainly a bigger industry, that's for sure. And I think that you're gonna see that continue to, to grow. And, and I don't mean that in sort of a, a, a general aspect, but I guess I do. I think that one of the things that we have seen is we're seeing this influence of climate change happen and you know, when I first started coming up to Archery Summit in the mid-90s, you know, our, our average harvest date was into October. And, and as we're 
progressing and we're now into 2022, you know, average harvest dates are into September. And so, you know, some of that is, is just changing in knowledge and, and how we've evolved. But I think that there is something going on with climate change. And because of that, I think you're going to see, especially things like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you're going to see more of the larger volume producers move into Oregon. And we've already seen that happen over the last 10 to 15 years. And I think that trend is going to continue. And so I think in some ways that will be good in the sense that it will be getting Oregon Pinot Noir and Oregon Chardonnay into a much wider audience. But at the same time, I think it also is going to present opportunities to distinguish yourself in that sort of quality to quantity battle. And I think that we're gonna have the opportunity to just continue to, to find that little niche on the quality side of things that we can market directly to people that are coming to Pacific City and visiting Oregon and checking out the Oregon coast. With Pinot Noir specifically, obviously it's been Oregon's, you know, but Bellwether great for a long time now. We're seeing more and more places doing what you're doing, where you're making Pinot, but you're also doing a lot of other kinds of things. Uh, have you, do you, how do you see that progressing? Do you see something else either taking over for Pinot Noir or challenging Pinot Noir as the dominant thing? Or do you see Pinot driving Oregon forward and, and other things just sort of kind of falling in line? I think you're just going to see more and more varietals coming online. You know, I think Pinot Noir is always going to be the backbone of the industry. And then certainly Chardonnay has been coming on strong recently, but I think you're going to find, especially as a little bit of climate change creeps in, it's going to be a much more conducive environment for a broader selection of grapes. Like we said earlier, you're already starting to see Chenin Blanc being planted in the Willamette Valley. Um, we're getting our bigger reds down from Southern Oregon. I think Southern Oregon is going to start seeing a lot wider distribution of different types of grapes, but I think you're just going to see more varietals. And I think, I think customers appreciate having that diversity. I mean, we've heard it here a number of times where, like, someone gets tired, they can't taste five Pinots in a row, and they're like, thank you for having one Pinot, one Merlot, one Syrah. I mean, I know everyone has their own taste. Everyone likes different things and what they like, but um, it's nice to be able to show, like, the difference in these, these different varietals, these different wines, and what Oregon can produce. I mean, in the Napa Valley, and I use this analogy from time to time, where you have the Carneros district in the south where you get your Pinot Noir, and then as you head north, it gets hotter, and so you get into your bigger, heavier reds. Um, in Oregon, we have the Willamette Valley that's cooler and where our Pinot grows, and then it gets hotter in the southern part of the state, and we go down there for our bigger reds. So we have to traverse a much wider, you know, we have to go a lot more miles than we did in the Napa Valley to make those kinds of wines, but like we said earlier, we like to make what we want to drink, and so we traverse two states to get that. <laughs> right. That's all the questions that I have for the two of you today. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I don't, I don't think, think so. so. No. Excellent. Other than that, we both worked in libraries in college. <laughs> Seriously. Well, we need to have a whole other interview about that. Yeah, I worked in a library in college, right. too. See? Nice. <laughs> no. Awesome. Libraries and a record store. Yeah. That's a good combination. Yeah. And we were both DJs. That's right. We were both DJs. That's yeah. Yeah. it for everything. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Thank you both so much for your Yeah, time. thank you, too. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming out to the coast. You.
hard, real hard sell there. Uh, thanks for your time and your stories, and we'll uh, let you off the hook. Sounds right. good. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.